The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, if you'll open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and when you found 1 Thessalonians, I'd like you also to turn to Matthew chapter 24, and then you're going to need even more fingers, because I would like you to find Revelation chapter 6. So those three scriptures, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Matthew chapter 24, and Revelation chapter 6, and those will be primary texts today, and We'll do quite a bit of reading in those scriptures. Now, our study this morning continues the discussion of the time that God will bring judgment on the world and will close out the history of man that began with Adam and his fall that made judgment upon the world necessary. God created the world for his glory. He created man, the creature upon whom he would make his display of mercy, of love, and grace. He created us for the glory of the Creator. God is holy, and he created everything in holiness and perfect righteousness. And then he declared that his creation was good, but then man fell from that happy and holy state. So the Bible is the story of how God, for his greater glory, intends to bring this world back to its innocence and holiness of the original creation, and to purge the world of sin and to reconcile this world to himself requires judgment. And that judgment is harsh because sin is exceedingly detestable to God. Sin angers God, and in keeping with his perfect justice, he must punish sin to the ends of the earth. Now, while we might think that the wrath of God surely doesn't show his attribute of love, we need to understand the purpose of God purging the world in such a way that it is to make this a a better place, to make it a more glorious place for man to live. It's to rid the world of all evil, of all heartache, of all suffering, of all despair and disappointment. It's to make it a place where sin is never permitted again, and thus there can never be another fall. God's attribute of justice is to be demonstrated as much as his attributes of grace and love. And once his justice has prevailed, the grace of eternal life becomes ours with all the riches of God's inheritance in Christ. Justice requires requiting man for the transgression of God's law. Now, I know there are many people who make fun of the Ten Commandments, won't, won't people say that you are a prude if you try to live by the Ten Commandments? And they think that the commandments are just a joking matter. Take them as you will. Leave them as you will. But God's law is not a joking matter. People are in hell by the millions because God's law is not a joke and because they paid no attention to it. It is God's law by which all people will be judged, and the intention of the law is always to point us to Jesus Christ, the only way that God's law can be satisfied. And so Christ will return with judgment upon all those that reject him as Lord and Savior because they have no excuse for their willing refusal to obey God. 
And the method by which God will purge the world and usher in his holy kingdom comes under a term that the Bible uses that is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the term that the Bible uses for this time of judgment that God brings to purge the world of its sin and its wickedness. The day of the Lord can best be described as a day of wrath, that it is a day of vengeance upon the accumulated wickedness of men since the day that Adam fell in the garden. Now, in our text of 1 Thessalonians 5, the Apostle Paul wrote, But of the times and of the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. The day of the Lord is a prominent theme in Scripture. There are scores of Old Testament references to it. There are also numerous New Testament passages that describe it. And in fact, we have a, a book in the New Testament that's dedicated almost entirely to telling us what will happen in that last day when God decides to bring this world back into conformity with his law. Genesis and Revelation are bookends of the Bible. One is at the beginning, the other is the ending. Genesis speaks of the old creation in the beginning while Revelation speaks of a new creation in the ending. Genesis tells about a curse that was placed upon the world, and Revelation tells us about a curse that will be lifted. Genesis speaks of the tree of life that was prohibited from Adam eating, while Revelation tells us of a tree of life in heaven where the saints of God are able to partake of forever, and they have eternal life uh, that, that is sustained in that tree of life. Genesis speaks of the arrival of Satan into the world, while Revelation speaks of Satan's exit from the world. Genesis speaks how sorrows began in sin, while Revelation tells us that sorrow ends because sin is gone. Genesis speaks of death that is demanded for sin, while Revelation speaks of death that is defeated by the one who knew no sin. And between those two bookends of the Bible, Genesis and Revelation, there's a story, but it's not the story of man per se, it is the story of man's redemption in Jesus Christ. And so we find all the way from Genesis to the end of Revelation, there is a scarlet thread of redemption that runs all the way through from the beginning to the end, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21 and 22, that tells us that Jesus Christ is the way of eternal life and the way that man can be brought to God. And so there is a process that the world must go through to reach the end of the revelation. There is a path of redemption that brings us out of the sorrows that began in Genesis to the bliss of being called the sons of God forever. Now that process is certain. The Bible is very clear on that point. There are more than a hundred passages in scripture that speak of it. The process is certain, but at the same time it is uncertain. It's certain to happen, but it's uncertain when it will happen. In our text of 1 Thessalonians, it says it comes as a thief in the night. When people claim peace and safety, when they think that no harm will come, then the great and terrible day of the Lord will be upon them. Now, I've given you quite a bit of information in the previous two messages that we don't have time to review 
And so I'd like to pick up our outline on the day of the Lord with the fourth observation, which is the calamity of the day. We've spoken of the certainty of it. We've spoken of the uncertainty of it. We've talked about characteristics of the day, that it is a day of judgment and of wrath. It's a day that arrives suddenly and will come as or come with stealth as a thief in the night. And so I want to, to return to our discussion of the calamities, which, which is about the events that God will use as a means of executing his judgment. Paul described it as labor pains. He compared it to a woman that is about to give birth to a child, that there are labor pains that intensify until the baby is born. Now, in our King James Bible, the old translation uses the word travail, which is the same as the pains of labor. Now, if you have your Bibles marked at Matthew 24, I'd like you to turn there where Jesus is speaking to his disciples during the last week of his life. Shortly, he would go to the cross and be nailed there to die for the sins of the world. But before he left this life, he gave this discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, where he explains the process by which God will bring the kingdom to Israel. Jesus said, these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, sorrows translates the same word that was used by Paul when he said travail, And using that term, Jesus listed the sorrows that will come in the day of the Lord. Now, to quickly catch you up on what we've discussed thus far, the day of sorrows begins with religious deception. In Matthew 24, 4 and 5, Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Take heed that no one deceive you. Now it's sad to say that the worst deception is a religious lie. The world is plagued with those who trifle with men's souls as they sell out the gospel of Christ to line their pockets with their greed. I recently read an article about the charismatic movement or the charismatic lie, the word of faith movement that spread around the world that has eclipsed true missionary movements. And our missionaries complained about this because they used to fight against the, the heresies of Catholicism in much of the world. But now that fight has turned in a different direction, and now they're more combating the lies of charismania. And where they used to fight against Catholicism, they find that Catholicism has joined in this because their pragmatism said that it's much easier to join these people who teach these things rather than to fight them. And so our missionaries have a tall task in trying to overcome that, that deceptive lie, that deception of the gospel to bring people to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, while there are many religious lies that are already in the world, that deception pales in comparison to the greatest of all deceptions that will come in the day that Christ returns. The world will not hear the trumpet sound when Jesus comes. They'll not hear the shout of the archangel. They'll not understand what just happened when there are millions of believers that suddenly go missing and graves are absent their bodies. And they won't understand why there are church buildings such as ours that are emptied out. On Sunday morning, this parking lot will be virtually empty Though I am afraid to say there might be some of you that will come. And you'll wonder, why isn't there a preacher there? 
Why isn't there a, a, someone leading the music? Why aren't there any deacons there? Maybe, maybe a couple of deacons, but you'll, you'll ask these questions. Now, the apostate church, though, will meet... It will carry on business just as it did before. They will deceive until the very last and they'll have their explanations. And they'll tell people, it's not so bad. Uh, it, it might be a little bit hard to understand, but we promise you, you can have your best life still. You can have it all right now. And so they'll preach peace and safety as they always did. Without true Christians in the world, a fake agenda, a false agenda, will quickly circle the globe. Apostate Churches will heal all their factions and they'll come together as one world church. And nothing then will hinder the devil as he masterminds the deceit of the nations. So religious deception, that's the first, as religious liars flourish. And that begins immediately after Christ takes his true church out of the world. Well, then there comes a second birth pang. The labor increases and next comes false saviors. In verse 5, Matthew 24, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. In Luke 2.18, And he said, Take heed that ye be not deceived. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them. Now the day of the Lord will be chaotic. People will look for answers and there will be religious leaders who will say, I am the answer. I am the one who can solve all of your problems. I'm the answer to your problems. Now remember this though, that the true church is gone. The Bible is still here. The Word of God will always be here because it says that it would be. Jesus said that it would be. The Word is the instrument of salvation. The Word must remain in the world for Israel to be saved. The gospel must be preached to them, and uh, they will enter the kingdom by belief of the gospel. But because the Word is not effective, and no one understands it until the Holy Spirit uses it to convict the heart, that Word will be withdrawn from those who, who have refused to believe in Jesus Christ, and they'll believe all these deceptions of the lies that are told. People will read the Bible, and they'll still look for Christ and not realize that he already came. False Christ will claim to be him, and they will succeed in that deceit because the world so desperately needs someone to give them hope and that peace and safety that you read about in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2. Now, before Christ came, there were liars who said they were the Messiah. The promise of the Messiah goes back thousands of years, and and because he hadn't come, there were those who said that we are the Christ. So in that 400 years of silence between the Old and the New Testament, there were men who, who came and said, we, we are the Savior. We are the one that's going to deliver Israel. One of these who was dependent upon was, uh, was uh, Judas Maccabeus. He, he arose during that period between the Testaments, and people thought that he was the hope, but he was not the one that God promised. Now, in the New Testament, we find that the Romans knew that the Jews expected that someone would save them. They were looking for a Messiah, and so they killed anyone who looked like they might spark a revolt against Rome. Pilate suspected that's what Jesus was about. But then he very quickly surmised that Jesus was not a threat to Rome, at least not in the way that he thought. And so when these labor 
pains come, among them will be false saviors that claim to give hope. And, and they claim that, uh, that they can help Israel. And Jesus is telling them in Matthew not to listen to that. There, there is no hope there. They, these false saviors are a path to destruction. But then out of this despair and out of all these claims will arise one who is far more credible than all the rest. And he will arrive with promises to make all things better and will bring peace and prosperity to the nations. That person is the Antichrist. Now notice that the word Christ is in his description. He appears as Christ, but he is Antichrist. He is a false Messiah who is energized by Satan and he mimics the power of the true Christ. Now, when we reach 2 Thessalonians in our study, we'll see there where he usurps the authority of God and even makes himself God. And he has a prophet to help him with his deception. Now, in Revelation 6, John's vision of the end times parallels what Jesus described in Matthew 24. So if you'll turn to Revelation 6, John also sees these birth pangs develop. He echoes in just a little bit different way what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. Now in Revelation 6, verse number 1, John writes, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. John said, I saw when a lamb opened one of the seals. Well, who is the lamb that he speaks of? We know this is the true Christ. This is the Son of God. He's the one slain from the foundation of the world. Now, what are these seals that he speaks of? Well, they're like wax seals that are placed on a scroll to keep the, the pages from opening. And when the seals are broken of this scroll, this scroll is the title deed to the earth. And as each seal is broken, it explains the steps that God will use to purge the world. Each seal corresponds to a birth pang that Jesus described in Matthew 24. He said, Jesus said, there would be false Christ. And so, as John sees this first seal broken, who is it that comes on the scene? It's a false Christ. It is the Antichrist who comes on a white horse. Now, immediately, what does that white horse remind us of? Well, you've all seen the graphic for our series. We have a white horse. That's the color of the horse that Christ will ride when he comes to establish the kingdom. And so the false Christ mimics the true. He comes on a white horse in this text. And we notice that it says he, he has a bow, but there is no description of arrows. And there are many who have noted this as a sign that the Antichrist will conquer without bloodshed. That he'll not achieve his power because he waged war, but he takes power because he preaches peace. And he joins the world in a peaceful coalition. But that peace is a ruse because he maintains peace by a war machine. He crushes all resistance against him and he unites governments and religion under one power. Now, Revelation chapter 17 describes the Antichrist religion. It's called Mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots. And that's a very interesting name because it's a religion 
that is a mother, so to speak, that gathers all of her illegitimate children together. Now, the symbolism, I believe, is Rome. The harlot, uh, the harlot daughters are the apostate churches of Rome and all other false religions combined. Now, you should note that the word Catholic means universal. That's always been the quest of Rome. It's to be truly Catholic, that is, a universal church that maintains exclusive control. And so finally they will reach that goal, backed by a false Christ and knowing all of their allegiance to him. And so we have here a pact of Satan, a pact with Satan, religion joining with Satan because the Antichrist is Satan's spawn. Now the Antichrist's real intention is to destroy religion altogether. He uses religion as a crutch because people are naturally religious. So he's able to get people to come together under the name of religion and he uses that religion as long as he needs it. But then when the time is right, the scriptures tell us that he will crush religion and then he'll make a purely secular government. The Antichrist will appear trustworthy. His charisma will drive confidence in him. Jesus described it in Matthew 24. He will appear as a friend of the Jews. He will make a pact with them. And he promises to protect them. But the intent is to destroy. This is what Satan has always done. Satan has always tried to destroy Jews. And this looks like his best opportunity to be successful. And so in Matthew 24, Jesus warned Israel about the Antichrist, false Christ, that, that, that say they speak in the name of God. And he says, don't listen to them and don't go after them. Now, if you'll keep Matthew and Revelation open together, we're going to look at more birth pangs. If you'll look at Matthew 24, verses 6 and 7. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in divers places. The parallel to that is Revelation 6, verses 3 and 4. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. And power was given unto him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth. And they that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. Now the next birth pang that is described is global conflict. Another seal is opened. There is another rider revealed. This one rides a red horse. And I believe that that red is indicative of bloodshed. The Jews will hear of wars and rumors of wars, and so they'll constantly live in fear of conflict. Now, the entire world, of course, is affected by this, but Jesus narrows his concern to the nation of Israel. They must go through this because these are the birth pangs that are the means of establishing the kingdom. Now, Jerusalem, the small city that's insignificant on the world scale, is the center of this conflict. Control of Jerusalem is the goal. And you know very well that that is a concern today. The quest of the control of Jerusalem is a great concern today, that politics around the world explode because of what happens in Jerusalem. Now today, Islam controls the Temple Mount. There's a mosque that sits nearly on top of the place where the Temple of God once stood, and the Jews want that area back. 
They have the right to it because God gave it to them. But people around this world won't touch that conflict. Nobody pushes that subject because that's a powder keg of supernatural proportions. Control of that small piece of land is the conflict of the ages as far as the history of man is concerned. Now the Antichrist promises it back to Israel. Follow me, he says. Follow me and I'll give it back to you. But out of that promise comes horrible bloodshed. Armies from across the world will converge on that little speck of land. And you should know that to God, Israel is the center of the world. Israel is the land that was given to his people. And so you needn't look for God's concern for any other nation. And that includes the nation of these United States. Everything that happens in God's economy centers on Israel and what happens to his people. And this is the very reason that Satan is so concerned about it too. He wants to own Israel to defeat God's purposes. To have Israel is to defeat God. And so the armies of the Antichrist will come to the plains of Megiddo and then comes Armageddon. You've heard of Armageddon. Armageddon is not about nuclear war between the U.S. and China and Russia and North Korea. It's not about nuclear capabilities of Iran. It's not, uh, it's not about diverting asteroids from striking the earth. Armageddon is about Israel. Who is going to get that little strip of land in the Mideast and have control of it? And they don't know that Armageddon is God's invitation for the armies of the world to converge in this place where in one fell swoop he will destroy them all. Now in Revelation 14 and in Revelation 19, Armageddon is described as a blood conflict. Now in other conflicts that are described in Revelation, we learn that one-third of the world's population will be killed by hordes of demons. If that happened today, it means more than two billion people killed. Let, let me give you one more image before I go on. In Matthew 24, verse 28, Jesus made this statement. He said, For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Now, in that verse, Jesus alludes to Armageddon. And this scene in Revelation 19, verses 17 and 18. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. Now, haven't we said that the Old Testament has much to say about the day of the Lord? This same scene is depicted in several places of the Old Testament, most notably Ezekiel 39, verse 17. And thou, son of man, thus saith the Lord God, speak unto every feathered fowl and to every beast of the field, assemble yourselves and come, gather yourselves on every side to my sacrifice that I do sacrifice for you, even a great sacrifice upon the mountains of Israel, that ye may eat flesh and drink blood." Now, these scriptures are a reference to that battle of Armageddon where there are so many killed in the battle that there isn't time or space to bury them. The bodies of the dead are left out in the open, and these verses are about the beasts of the fields and the birds of the air that come to devour them. 
And the scripture says they'll eat to the full. A very bad day to be a man, but a great day to be a vulture. Now, we go on. Next, Jesus speaks of global hunger and disasters. This is Matthew 24, verse 7. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. Now, I know as we read some of these verses, there are people, maybe even some of you, that are very skeptical about the things that I'm telling you now. But do you see I'm only reading the Word of God to you? Do you see that I'm just reading what Jesus said? These things will come. Well, this compares to John's vision in Revelation 6, verses 5 and 6. If you want to go there. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Now there is a great famine that comes in which the ration of a day's food is a cup of wheat and three cups of barley. I assume that you have a measuring cup at home. Measure out four cups of oatmeal and that would be the ration for your entire family. Oh, you've seen pictures of starving children in the Sudan, in Ethiopia and in Somalia and other places around the world. You see the pictures of their bellies swelled with gas. Their eyes have mucus in them. There are flies that are on them and stick to them. Young and old are skin and bones. That's the scene here. That's the scene when this labor pain comes. Only this starvation is over many, many other countries of the world. There's a foreshadowing of this in Second Kings. You may know the story of how Syria laid siege to Samaria and they surrounded the city and they cut it off all of their supplies. And food was so scarce and the siege was so long that it, it cost 80 pieces of silver to buy a donkey's head to eat. Pigeon droppings were sold for food. Two quarts cost five pieces of silver. Now if I'd lived then, I'd be rich. Because pigeons leave those deposits in my house, saleable commodities every day. <laughs> Famines at that time will grip the world. It will be an economic disaster. And so the world will turn to the Antichrist for the solution. Jesus said there will be pestilences and earthquakes in many places. Now let me just show you what may be a likely source of this worldwide famine. In Revelation 8 verse 7, the first angel sounded... And there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth, and the third part of the trees was burnt up, and all the green grass was burnt up. God sends hail mingled with fire. He burns up one-third of the trees and the grasses. And you ask, what trees? Well, all trees. That includes fruit trees. What are the grasses? Well, that doesn't mean just the grass that's on your front lawn. What are, what are wheat? What, what is wheat? What's barley? What's rye? What are oats? Those are grasses. And so all these grasses, one-third of the great wheat fields of Kansas, of Nebraska, of the Dakotas, me and you and a dog named Boo and the wheat fields of St. Paul, for those who recognize that reference, the wheat fields of the Ukraine and China, all around the world, this world staple of bread is scarce. Corn fields are burned up and... The world is reduced to a ration 
of a cup of wheat and four cups of barley. Earthquakes also in diverse places. Many places that never fear earthquakes will be shaken. Now in California, we expect earthquakes. We feel the tremors. We're warned there's a big one coming. But most of us don't think very much of it, do we? We, we, we felt so many earthquakes. We felt the tremors. We're warned of the big one. But we're used to that, so we don't think about it. So you don't walk around in fear of earthquakes. But when I lived in Kentucky, we didn't expect earthquakes. The first one that I felt was when I came here to California. It was in Napa just a few years ago when I lived there. Uh, I believe it was a, a 5.6 quake. I was in bed asleep, and it lifted my house. Dishes fell on the floor, the TVs turned over, the chimney fell, the brick fireplace on the inside came tumbling down. Well, we didn't expect those things in Kentucky. And so that experience was shocking and it was frightening. But did you know that the biggest earthquake on the North American continent occurred in the southwest corner of Kentucky? That was in 1811 along the New Madrid Fault. And that quake was felt over an area of one million square miles. Now you compare that to the 1906 quake in San Francisco. That quake was felt over 6,200 square miles. One million square miles versus 6,200. Now my point here is that earthquakes will crop up everywhere. And we're not talking about little tremors that do little damage. Now the day of the Lord will shake the earth from its foundations. And then I might add, with earthquakes, there are volcanoes. Many of you, or some of you at least, that are my age, you remember the eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980. And do you remember how ash fell across the country? And do you remember how that plume of, of ash was sent up into the atmosphere and the jet stream picked it up and that was falling out all across the country? You may remember that. Now imagine that the ring of fire of volcanoes of the Pacific Northwest all leap to erupt at the same time. How dangerous and toxic will the air be when Mount Rainier, Mount Shasta, Mount Lassen, Mount Hood, Mount St. Helens, Crater Lake, Glacier Peak, Mount Baker, all of these volcanoes come to life. And then in Mexico and in Indonesia, in Japan, everywhere they belch out fire and smoke. And what will happen when... Those sparks and ash fall on California's tinderbox of forest. Well, the 2017 fire in Santa Rosa will be like a matchstick compared to the blazing infernos in that day. Is that what burns up the trees and the green grasses? Well, there are more disasters that happen. Adding to this famine is the poisoning of the seas and the killing of fish. In Revelation 8, verses 8 and 9, and the second angel sounded, and as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea. And the third part of the sea became blood, and the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and the third part of the ships were destroyed. Oh, you're very much aware that much of the world depends on the industry of fishing. Many of the world's, much of the world's population is, is fed by the oceans and the fish that come from there, and freshwater fish as well. All of that is going to be turned to blood. The world's commerce is shaken. The container ships that you see passing under the Golden Gate Bridge will be pitched up on the shore with the earthquakes and all of that that's taking place. And some of those ships will sink in the channel, blocking for others to get through. No food, 
no goods, no merchant, merchant marines or the great container ships that encircle the globe with uh, making commerce between the nations, no trinkets from China, birth pangs, birth pangs, and more birth pangs. And we've only scratched the surface. Now, the oft-repeated prophecies of the Old and New Testament speak of things like the sun being blotted out, the moon turned to blood, the ash shot up thousands of feet into the air may account for that. Peter picked up on this in his sermon on Pentecost. He said in Acts chapter 2, And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. Now isn't that interesting, that the prophets and preachers of God's word never strayed very far from this same message. God is going to make all things right. But it will be a terrible method by which he does it. The day of the Lord is a compelling component in Peter's salvation message. Just after he said this, his next point was, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you think that might not be a strong incentive to turn to Jesus Christ? Crops destroyed, fish killed, the ground shakes violently, volcanoes worldwide erupt, famine and starvation. It's an apocalyptic world, never seen before. Jesus said, there's no time like it. Not now, not ever before, and not until then. Now if you'll look at Matthew 24, verse number 9. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Now, Jesus here is still speaking to the Jews. The kingdom is coming, but it doesn't come with ease. There's great tribulation. Now, Jewish, Jewish believers and all who come to the Lord by their witness will experience this next birth pang. And this next one is persecuted believers. Persecution has long been the devil's tactic. Now, in the last days... The persecution of God's people will be like never before. If you've read church history, you know how desperately that Satan has tried to destroy the church with persecution. Well, the church is gone in the day of the Lord. The church has been taken out of the world. And so now all of Satan's attention is turned towards this burgeoning crop of converted Jews. The Jews, the nation of the Jews will, will turn to Christ because that's what the kingdom's going to be made of. So now the devil turns all of his attention to the Jewish people. Thousands of Jews will be saved, but thousands will be killed. Now the Jews have always been a persecuted people. They're persecuted not knowing the Lord. Now imagine if the hatred of Christ is added on to that because they have become converts. Jesus said, all nations will hate you for my name's sake. And if it wasn't for God's protection and his intentions for Israel, that race would have disappeared a long, long time ago. Now today you can search high and low. You'll not find a Hittite. There are no Jebusites. There are no Ammonites. There are no Amalekites. Why are there none of those? But there are Jews. Why have the Jews survived? And they've been here since God called Abraham. Why? Because miraculously, God preserved them. 
God preserved the race, and there's no other explanation for it. They are His people. They're the sheep of His pasture. They're designed, destined to rule in a renewed kingdom. And there were times when it looked like they wouldn't survive. In the time of Elijah, true Israel was almost extinct and reduced to 7,000 that had not bowed their, their knees to the image of Baal. In World War II, Hitler tried mass genocide to rid Germany and its conquered territories of the Jews in the Holocaust. And in the last days, the Antichrist will follow those same steps of anti-Semitism. Satan wants to destroy the kingdom and defeat God. There can't be a kingdom without Jews. God promised it 1,500 years before Christ. God promised it now 2,000 years since Christ. And thus there are still Jews. They're still here because there's a kingdom coming for them. Jesus said, you will be afflicted. They will kill you. Nations will try to destroy you for my namesake. So yes, you take the natural hatred there is for the Jewish people and you add on top of that the world's hatred of Christ and you have a recipe for rampant persecution. The worst slaughter, the worst genocide that the world has ever seen. But let me show you something. What does God do in that day? Romans chapter 11 verses 26 and 27. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. God will save them. His people will survive, because in the day of the Lord, there will emerge a kingdom. Now for time's sake, I need to pull the plug on this sermon today. But next week, I want to take you further into Satan's schemes, past, present, and future in his attempts to destroy God's people. And if it wasn't that God was on Israel's side to preserve the remnant, they would be at Sodom and Gomorrah. So we end here. The world will say, peace and safety. They'll say, we're in control, but there is travail. The birth pangs come. Now the rapture is over, the church is gone, and the world sits back and says, good riddance. They're, they're not in the way any longer. We don't have to worry about them anymore. They won't interfere with us. And they think all is fine. They're in control, so they think. But God has them on his leash. And in the midst of his day, a great and terrible day, Paul says, they will not escape. Now my word to you today is that it won't happen to you if you trust Christ. If you know Jesus Christ, you'll not see any of this in your body. Now, you will see it, but in a glorified body. You'll be the one who rules and reigns with Jesus Christ. The only way to escape these terrible things that come upon the world is to know Christ as your Savior. Repent and believe the gospel, and you will be saved from certain judgment to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now thinking about this immense and terrible subject that we've talked about today. It's frightening to think what's coming upon this world. I do ask, Lord, that you would lay it upon our hearts to understand this better and that you would, you would uh, have us to, to come to you in repentance and faith and that we would understand 
uh, in, in a more perfect way what you're going to do with this world. So, Lord, we just ask that you would speak to people today, open their hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and may the Christians that are here today be the ones that will tell uh, uh, others about what's coming and warn them of that terrible day. Help us, Lord, as we continue in this world waiting for Jesus Christ to come to be lights, shining lights of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.